welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, a modern history of China through the lens of revolutionary movements starting from about 1839 to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Um, I'm looking to get up to 100 paid subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast or join the Substack, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, or you can join the Substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com, or please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Okay, jumping into today's episode. Uh, in the, all the episodes before today, we've talked about quite a lot of things, like why, why diplomacy was really spotty between Britain and China, and we're focusing on Britain because Britain was the, the one that uh, did the Opium War. The East India Company, uh, they are dropping out of the picture really fast because they lose their uh, monopoly on trade with China in 1833. Uh, various odds and ends in the historical context we spent two whole episodes on Protestant missionaries, and I confess I was kind of tossing off a quick one. Um, I was busy those weeks, but those episodes were scheduled. Um, but, you know, it is important background for when we get into the Taiping Rebellion very, very soon here. But now it's finally time to pick back up with the exciting story bits. Uh, we're going right from here, starting today, into the Opium War and kicking off the Taiping Rebellion in maybe a month or less. We have to talk about the Opium War because we need to call it forth uh, for some of the changes that we're going to be talking about, but we're going to brush right past it as fast as possible. Um, one of the reasons why we have to talk so much about the foreign interference in China is that the uh, foreign influence kept China from making complete changes. So, like for example, the Taiping Rebellion. Um, there, there's a way in which you might see that as an uh, uncompleted revolution. That either, you know, one of the people on the side didn't replace the Qing Dynasty, or the Taiping would have been the next thing, or. So part of why we're focusing so much on the foreigners is that their hand in all this kept things from completely changing. Uh, so uh, as we dive into the, the main body of the episode here, as we cut through the background, this is the like this is finally it, right right up to where the Taiping rebellion is gonna start from. Finally it. Again, today we're relying on Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. Uh, Europeans and Americans were trading opium into China. Today we're talking about when the Chinese really, really got serious about it and started targeting European traders for enforcement. Before, a lot of their stuff was focused on domestic issues, but one of the guys we're introducing today is going to be the guy who really brings it to the foreign traders and that 
you know, it's showtime, and as a result of that, we'll have the Opium War. And so we're picking up in the late 1830s. The East India Monopoly, uh, the East India Company official monopoly over trade between Britain and the East ended in 1833. So them, so them being like a government-backed trading company uh, and whatever quasi-governmental authority they may have had, that's over. Uh, there were a variety of trading companies, companies still carrying on business, both official, like tea, silk, porcelain, all that, and uh, then opium on the side as an under-the-table sort of thing. Um, but the, the official authority is not entirely clear. Uh, the Chinese authorities wanted to keep peace, more or less, but there was there were no official lines of communication about anything larger than how to keep things going in Canton. We could get into the weeds of how all that worked. Um, it might even be worth doing a podcast just on like what it was like to be an expat in China during various eras. Like I remember going to this one bookstore in Beijing, The Bookworm, and there was this one room where like just so many different books on history of Beijing and China generally, and it felt like you could go from that room into so many different places around China. You could step from there into a hundred years ago. You could, but the bookworm in Beijing is no more. It closed. Shoot, uh, two years ago, three years ago, three years ago. Let's say three. All right. Um, so the issues in play with the, uh, the, the, you know, between Britain and China, the stuff that they would have had to figure out, the legality of the opium trade, like the foreign traders knew it was illegal, but I, they were making a lot of money, so it wasn't really worthwhile to figure out just how illegal it was. They were able to get away with it. The Chinese distributors took, you know, carried it to customers and stuff, so the foreigners got their money, the Chinese side of things took care of itself. Okay, currency policy, trade in and out of China. Uh, China was trying to you know, keep silver in China. Um, adjudicating legal disputes between Chinese and foreigners. Okay, so if uh, foreign trade goods get burned up, like who, who pays for that? What if somebody gets killed? Whose penalties do you apply? Um, Chinese penalties are much, much different than European penalties at the time. I mean, you know, in, in a European country, you might get whipped, you might get branded, maybe, depending on where you were, you might get hanged, but uh, the Chinese uh, penalties were a, could be a lot more creative. Um, uh, very could be very well. It, it's just like they have. There's different penalties for different things. So like you might get executed for one thing that in another country you might not get executed for. It, it's all. It all gets really ugly, and then just wider issues of trade. Like can we? 
go to more places than Canton or not? The answer uh, that James Flint found was, no, you can go right back to Canton. Uh, the So proposals kind of went back and forth. It's not that there was no communication, but because there was a failure, really, to establish official high-level exchange between Britain and China, it was really hard to have serious, authoritative, nuanced discussion that would actually go somewhere. It's like, you know, when you write an ultimatum, like like there's somebody or other who's been just pushing you up to the edge and you write a carefully nuanced note that you just lay out your whole side and they just don't get that note. You don't have it in you to write another one of those. So like next time you see him, you're just going to kick him right in the wherever it hurts most. Um, you know, but in all fairness, they didn't get the note. Well, that's kind of what happens here. You know, China would ask for something, but it wouldn't reach anyone who could make a decision or the decisions made wouldn't really include what the Chinese had asked. Britain on its side would try to order things in a certain way and, um, trying to clarify things would get shot down in parliament. Um, but then also one of the things we're going to see is that Traders on the ground wanted Britain to force issues in a certain direction, but actually being the government, you can't just do everything because you have to do, you have to cover everything, but, uh, the, okay, anyway, so the main problem is when everything came to a head, no one, no, everything came to a head, no one felt like backing down, and no one could really talk about it, so it was going to go to the extreme, and that's where it was going to be settled. So today we're going to zoom in on the Chinese official sent to suppress the opium trade and the English official who tried to do something about it. So let's start with the English guy. Charles Elliot lived from 1801 to 1875. He was a captain in the Royal Navy. Uh, in 1833, he was appointed master attendant to the staff of Lord Napier, Chief Superintendent of British Trade in China, which was kind of a very low position for his status, really, but we'll get to how he got to be the big cheese on the scene. Um, he went through a succession of posts in that area until becoming the big cheese himself, the chief of a commission governing British trade with China in 1837. He didn't exactly take over Lord Napier's position. There was some fiddly detail that got in the way of that. Um, in 1830, he was, just to give you some sense of this guy's background, he was protector of slaves in British Guyana in the New World. Um, so he was part of British humanitarian efforts to try to uh, figure out how to make whatever commercial activity was going on in its empire um, more humane, uh, more benevolent. He extensively interviewed slaves. Uh, he extensively explored the issue, and so he was very, very well versed on what was going on. It's part of an increasingly benevolent approach by the British government toward its colonial holdings. You know, around the, okay, so the the trade in slaves had been abolished. Britain's moving toward abolishing slavery itself. Um, so 
uh, Elliot had been called back to Britain in 1833 to report to the British government on conditions of uh, sl people held as slaves in the British Empire. While he was in Britain, the Reform Act passed, and the East India Company monopoly of trade was ended, and he was sent very quickly back out, but this time to Asia, with a low-level functionary position uh, in the retinue of Lord Napier, chief superintendent of British trade in China. He really resented his position, his boss, his boss's family. He would call Lord Napier my emperor in private. Uh, Napier was 15 years older, but they were both technically naval captains. But uh, Elliot was treated coldly by Napier and his wife. And so like, if you're looking for pride and prejudice level, you know, cold shouldering and all that sort of nastiness, that's what was going on. But he still pushed ahead for career advancement. He 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 had his thing to do. And then when Napier died, his fortunes turned. His next boss was John Davis, uh, who promoted him to uh, secretary of the, the committee of superintendents, um, secretary to the committee, uh, Davis liked Elliot's pragmatic and flexible attitude. He wasn't as rigid and, you know, stick up the relevant portions of the anatomy as Napier. Um, he was more flex. He was more easy to deal with. Like he could find creative solutions. But also, David w Davis, uh, John Davis, was really looking to line up his replacement. He had East India Company ties, and the East India Company was on the way out, so any anybody in charge of official things needed to have as few East India Company ties as possible. So then Davis uh, resigns early, he goes back to England, and he tries to see if he can line up uh, uh, Elliot as the next chief superintendent. And so... He got that job. They kind of had to do something or other with officially what it was because there was some reason why he couldn't have exactly that job, but they had to, but they, they basically gave him the job. His job was to keep British traders out of trouble with the Chinese, keep good relations with the Chinese, to rein in predatory criminal tendencies of British su subjects overseas, and this is in line with his past experience working on the slavery issue, you know, benevolent government intentions that he's trying to make sure that not only do overseas British subjects not get, you know, not have bad things happen to them, he's trying to keep them from doing bad things to other people. And he's also working to deflect calls for British military or other strong-handed intervention. It's just trying to keep trade moving. That's the main thing. Just keep trade moving and don't let any trouble get back to headquarters. Um, but for one reason or another, his position and his authority weren't entirely clear. He didn't quite have judicial powers, so like he couldn't arrest somebody, put him on trial. And if he needed to work out an agreement, it wasn't clear what authority he had, which is what we're going to see in, the ne in uh, next week's episode. So, you know, it's like when you send somebody over there to keep things quiet, but you don't have a clear plan worked out, 
as to exactly how to deal with certain kinds of things that might come up. If they show any initiative, then they might get punished for it. But if they don't do anything, they might get punished for that. And it's really tricky. Well, here's how it went. He made a very good first impression. See, uh, apparently Lord Napier was... I'm just going to come right out with it. He was an ass. He was not nice. The Chinese um, really... Like, you know, most cultures, if you're a straightforward, easy-to-deal-with person, you address their concerns, you don't just put your... Well, in China, like, face is really important. Um, showing important people that you're working with, that you know that they're important, you can respect their status, um, you address their concerns, that's really important. Dong Tingzhen, uh, the new governor general, uh, and Charles Elliot found a lot of common ground. They got off to a good start. Charles Elliot got a non-derogatory Chinese name. His name was Righteous Law in Chinese. Uh, you know, so the, the, the Chinese can just call you whatever they want in Chinese. They, it might, they, Getting a Chinese name in English, I remember when I got a Chinese name in my Chinese class, um, the teacher told us to put our names into this website that would spit out a Chinese name. I got this one and I showed the Chinese teacher and she said, okay, uh, this one character, this is not a name word. Can I change this? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So then I I got the Chinese name Bai Hao Tian. Um, so it actually turned out to be exactly the same name as a Chinese friend I had. But, so, and that's that's a good name. It's a really straightforward, standard name. I've seen a clothing shop or something with that name, Hao Tian, as well. Uh, so they, they can, Chinese is really, really good for puns. So even if they're just making something that sounds like your non-Chinese name, they can call you all sorts of really funky stuff if they have a mind to do so. Uh, Charles Eliot gained permission to come over to Canton directly in order to keep the British subjects over there in line. And But the trouble is that keeping the British in line is kind of the opposite of what the British traders wanted. Uh, being at peace with the Chinese wasn't their priority. It was getting their way. It was being able to open whatever businesses they wanted to do, include, including opium. Um, so Charles Eliot's ambiguous position made him anxious for positive developments. So like in February 1837, he has a full translation of a proposal to the emperor to end the opium prohibition, yeah, plus the local governor's uh, endorsement. You know, Deng Tingzhen liked this idea. And so for a long time, like right up until the guy who's coming to shut it all down shows up, uh, Elliot has this idea that you know maybe the Chinese government is about to legalize opium trade. Well, uh, Eliot was also receiving a lot of very accurate information about how China worked. 
So the pioneering work by Protestant missionary Robert Morrison and another Protestant missionary, Carl Gutzloff, did some almost spy sort of work, traveling up and down the coast in disguise, uh, research, interviews, wide reading of Chinese sources. Car Carl Gutzloff is an interesting character. He wore many hats. Of course, if you're going to be in disguise, you need a lot of hats. Uh, but things weren't really going the way that uh, that Elliot was hoping. The emperor in Beijing was increasingly inclined toward ordering the suppression of the opium trade. And so from 1837 to 1838, the opium market collapsed because so many traders were coming because they were hoping for legalization, so oversupply. But then the ongoing crackdown made it more difficult to do business, so higher smuggler fees cut into the profits of uh, the foreign traders and uh, you know, presumably higher bribes by officials. Uh, and the previous kind of sort of polite unofficial wall between uh, legal trade and opium smuggling was breaking down because opium dealers were forcing every angle to keep the trade going. Ships dealing in tea, silk, uh, you know, all the good above-board stuff. They were also carrying opium now. Um, and so Eliot's priorities, the safety of British subjects and continuance of trade, uh, he was trying to push for diplomatic intervention by the British. Um, but like part of the problem was this hadn't worked before. The British had tried things. They had it on the books as they had sent embassies and been re been rebuffed. Uh, so let's let's look at the guy who's going to be appointed by the emperor to shut down the opium trade, Lian Zhe Xu. Um, he lived from 1785 to 1850. In 1838, he was appointed one. Uh, no, he supported one of the harsher proposals in the discussion at the highest levels in Chinese uh, government circles for suppressing the opium trade. He was the governor general at the time of Hunan and Hubei provinces. I've been to Hubei. It's, it's uh, fun anyway. Um, he passed the national level Confucian examinations in 1811 uh, at the age of 26. And this is really quite extraordinary. Uh, uh, I believe that we calculated in a previous episode that like it might take 13 years if you get everything exactly right to pass all of the examinations. So he was really smart. He passed everything in the, on the conventional side of things. He didn't just, you know, fail at the Conf Confucian exams, but then just become really accomplished just on the side and other studies. He passed all of the official stuff. So he was in place at a pretty young age shoot he's like at that age he was like eight years younger than i am now like yeah so he was really good um in the he was a judge in the 1820s renowned for fairness honesty integrity putting the welfare of the people first he had the name lin clear as heaven everything he did was with a focus on domestic policy his approach to foreign relations even was domestic policy results. Like so when foreigners turned up in a ship off the coast of China, his thing was about keeping Chinese back, not about uh, 
doing anything to the foreigners. It's just foreigners, get out, just go so that I can, you know, take care of the Chinese right here that I have to deal with. And he was an admirer of Bao Shichun, somebody we previously talked about in, uh, I believe it was the episode about the intellectual discussion before the Opium War, Chinese academics and all that. Um, in 1833, he proposed opium production in China, so that gets rid of the foreigners and keeps the silver in China, so the opium addicts can have what they want, but it's China is focused on China. His proposals for dealing with opium uh, both were on the suppression side, destroying drug paraphernalia, destroying opium, but also on the healing and treatment side. Treatment of addicts, rehabilitation, setting up hospitals to help them through withdrawal. So he, he, had, he had a comprehensive approach that it, it wasn't just law and order. In 1838, with his proposals for greater strictness against opium, he was also launching a campaign in the provinces of which he was a governor. And so he was really, really going at it in Hubei and Hunan. And, you know, he like, he would publicly destroy opium so that if it, it could clearly be seen that officials weren't just taking the opium and selling it or using it themselves. Like, his... You know, his you know, integrity stays the same in his dictionary whether or not you're looking it up. Like, he is, like, this guy is so above board that, like, it's just, he's, like, he's really, really good in every sense of good. Good at his job and just a good person. In October 1838, the Daoguang Emperor demoted the guy who promoted the idea of legalizing opium. So, like, if if you're knocked down a few positions for your suggestion, maybe they don't want that one. There was a huge seizure of opium in North China, in the port city of Tianjin. And so, like, that's it. We gotta do something about this. So in December 1838, Lian Zexu is summoned to Beijing to meet the emperor uh, about suppressing the opium trade. They had long meetings with the emperor. And so in January 1839, Lian Zexu is appointed imperial commissioner to act on the emperor's behalf, and he's not answerable to, answerable to local officials. He does what he thinks is right, and what he says goes. Deng Qingzhen, the governor general there in Canton, was directed separately to support Lian Zexu, so that you know, the guys on the ground, they're going to be supporting what this guy coming in from outside is aiming to do. And so, as Charles Elliot is waiting for opium legalization, Lian Zexu is coming down to open a can of whoop-ass on the opium trade. He's, he's coming down to end it. And next week, we will find out exactly why it is that the Royal Navy showed up off the coast of China for the Opium War, ready to play hardball. So, and it's, it's really more problems on the British side than the Chinese side. It's, it, this is really kooky. Like, I didn't understand this until 
I really, really read it. Uh, I, I think, was it preparing for this podcast or just when I read the book? Anyway, um, so we'll see you for that exciting bit next week. Again, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to join the Substack, uh, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Again, this has been Nathan Bennett. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening again.